right. Well, come on back. Come on back and grab your Bible. And uh, we are going to tackle the last book. It's actually not the last uh, Minor Prophet, but I was scheduled to teach it, I think, and I was out of town. So Mike sort of took us to the end, and we're now just jumping back and grabbing Haggai. But one of the things I think that's great about the Minor Prophets, or a great exercise for us, so I'm going to have, have some little class participation here, even though it's a teaching and a sermon, and it probably won't come on great on the tape. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, we can go. <laughs> First of all, how many minor prophets are there? Yeah, and uh, why are they called minor and not major? There are short, but Timothy, Timothy, two great names right here, Timothy and Timothy, say, well, why is Daniel not a minor prophet? He only has 12. You got it. That's right. Well, anyway, listen, here's who they are, Hosea. And one of the exercises for you, if you want to learn the Bible and be a student of the Bible, I think one of the things that you could do is to think in your mind about how each of these 12 prophets are unique. So I'm sort of going to take you through that real quick. Hosea, the first one. How is Hosea unique? By the way, how are the first nine versus the last three unique? Here's how. The first nine are pre-exilic. So you have to know what exile means. And that's the exile of the Jews to Babylon, taken out in three stages, 605 BC, 597 BC, and 586 BC. And so the first nine are pre-exilic, but now watch this. Hosea, I think, and I'm pretty sure it's right, he's the only prophet to come from the northern kingdom, and the northern kingdom of Israel. And here's what's interesting. Just yell it out for me. What distinguishes Hosea from the rest of the book? What's unique to the book? He marries a prostitute. That's exactly right. And so, Hosea, you remember that from several times ago. Joel, Joel, one of the oldest, probably, uh, prophets. Uh, they can't really uh, pinpoint the date of the book of Joel, but that speaks of the coming day of judgment, the promise of the outpouring of God's Spirit. And every time a parent, and this happens a lot, laments the fact that they didn't start their kids out early enough in the word or the gospel. I always remember Joel because what the locusts have eaten, God can put back together, right? The grace of God, God can do the work. And so uh, that's Joel. Amos, Amos, he was a prophet from Judah, uh, the southern kingdom, but he gave the message to the northern kingdom. Isn't that interesting? And he had to walk up there and march into the courtroom and sort of look around and say, here's what God wants to tell you. Real brave. And he talked about God's judgment on Israel and the future glory of God's kingdom. Oh, everybody will know this one. Jonah. Jonah, a pre-exilic prophet. He didn't really preach. No, he didn't. He didn't preach to the people of Israel or Judah. Who did he preach to? Ninevites, right? That's what's unique about Jonah. And the thing about Jonah that's really struck me, and hopefully, and, and maybe it has, but, but this has really struck me the last time I taught through this, is how he went away exactly the wrong way from where God was leading him. But this was interesting. When he got to the port city of Joppa, 
It was really easy for him to get on the boat, and it was the wrong decision. In other words, sometimes God leads you to things that are difficult, not easy. And that was an interesting uh, learning experience for us. Micah, Micah, he prophesied in Judah, the southern kingdom, and he talked about the fall of Israel and Judah, and there was this great prophecy, you all know it and you love it at Christmas time, that the Messiah will be born, right? That the Messiah will be born at Bethlehem. Who would have thought anyone would be born at Bethlehem, right? And so uh, that's really cool. Nahum, Nahum, uh, he spoke exclusively to uh, the people of Nineveh or the doom of Nineveh. Do you remember that? And so he would go hand in glove with who? Jonah, right, exactly. Habakkuk, Habakkuk, uh, invasion of Judah and the doom of the Babylonians. That's Habakkuk, and uh, I always remember it because I love this word. I like words. I know that's weird, but he uses the word rampart. Rampart, It's right? Just look up rampart later. And uh, anyway, my free little gift to you. Uh, Zephaniah, Zephaniah. What does he uh, talk about? Uh, he prophesied in the days of King Josiah, great-grandson of King Hezekiah, and uh, he talks about the great day of God, which is at hand. That's Zephaniah. We're going to do Haggai tonight, Zechariah, and Malachi. The last three prophets are not pre-exilic, they're post-exilic, and the first post-exilic prophet is Haggai. And Zephaniah here, or excuse me, Zechariah here came right after Haggai. He started prophesying within months. Really, Haggai just prophesies for about three or four months, which is, there's a sermon there, I think. Well, this godly guy, some people believe he was an older man, had three months of being in the spotlight, but his whole life was a life of serving the Lord. But anyway, that's what we're going to do tonight. Haggai, Zechariah sort of talks about the same thing. What's really fascinating about Haggai is Haggai and Zechariah, almost the same thing. Haggai gets it done in two chapters. I tend to be the uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, he gets it done in several, almost 14 chapters, right? 14 chapters. Then Malachi comes about a hundred years later and he sort of talks uh, to the post-exilics and seeing what they're going on or what's going on in their lives. So Haggai, his name has, is tied into fe feast or festival. And so some people believe he was born during one of the feasts or the festivals of the Jews. Other people believe because the, uh, he is obsessed in the good way through the spirit with dating these four sermons that he's going to give in two chapters or four presentations to the people in two chapters. And many of them coincide with the feasts or the festivals. And so some people believe that's why. He's the 10th in the order of the minor prophets. And we talked about that. Now you're going to need to know a few dates. Oh, I love dates. I love them. But here's why. You know this, that in 586 BC, that's ultimately then when the Babylonians came down and gave the knockout punch and bring the exiles up into Babylon. But what you don't know right now, and it happens in other books, 
is while they're up there and things are happening, there's actually another country that comes in and overturns the Babylonians, and they're the Persians. So in 538 BC, Cyrus, write that down on your little Bible there or in your notes, 538 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed the exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem. And what's fascinating about that is, this is one of the most astounding prophecies in the Bible. And Isaiah, I think it's the 49th chapter, 45th chapter, there you go, the 45th chapter. In Isaiah, the 45th chapter, there's a prophecy that was before the time of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that a guy named Cyrus, the king, would actually allow the Jews to return from exile. Can you believe it? And some people, this is by legend, this isn't in the Bible, this is extra biblical, uh, believe that Daniel showed this prophecy to Cyrus. But whatever, in 538 BC, the king of Persia, Cyrus, allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Now, you, if this sounds familiar to you, it should, because you're great Bible students, you've been following along here for several years or months, and you know that you have read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And you would read these three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, you would read these three prophets in conjunction with those two books, with those two books. And what happened was uh, Cyrus allows the Jews to go back. Around 45 to 50,000 Jewish people then actually return uh, from exile. And they begin work on reducing the rubble or clearing the rubble, excuse me, and laying a little bit of the foundation and creating the altar of the temple that was destroyed in 586 BC. Is everybody tracking with me so far? I know it's a lot of information, but if you don't get the historical context of the prophet, you'll never understand what he's saying. So in 538, they say he, the, the Cyrus says, come back. They start to work on the construction of the temple, led by who? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, and he's an important character. But after a couple years of very zealous work on the house of the Lord, guess what happens? The work stops. The work stops, and we'll see why here in a minute. And so now, fast forward about 16 or some say 14 years, but whatever, we're in 520 BC when Haggai uh, delivers his prophecies. Now, write that down, 520 BC. So somewhere between 14 and 16 years, it's been since the people who were told, decreed, told by the Lord to go build his house, have been working on his house. Hmm. Interesting. Well, read, let's read this. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, or Darius, Darius, that's funny you say that because I looked that up there and about 50% of the people say Darius, which I would fall in that camp but about 50% say Darius. So you folks say what you want, okay? <laughs> but what we do know is we're in September of 520 BC. September of 520 BC. In the second year of King Darius, Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet 
to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, so there's these two characters, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is more the political figure. This is important. He's more the political figure. Uh, Joshua, more the spiritual figure, okay? And the word of the Lord comes by Haggai, and they're saying, go talk to these two people. Zerubbabel and Joshua. And thus speaks the Lord of hosts, verse 2, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. What is the Lord saying to the two leaders that are charged here with helping to build the physical properties of Jerusalem and the spiritual life of the people in Jerusalem? What is he saying? He's saying, here's what the people say. The time has not come. It's not time, despite the fact that the Lord has told them to go and build the house of the Lord the time that the Lord's house should be built. Notice, they're not saying that the Lord didn't tell them to build the house. Notice that. What he's saying here is, is that it's not time. Now, this is a very fascinating thing, and I'm not going to bore you with all the machinations of this, but this would be something for you. Five and Jeremiah 29, you recall that the Lord says, okay, you haven't done what I've asked you with respect to uh, letting the land grow or stay um, without being uh, plowed every seventh year. And you've done it now for 70 years or 490 years. So 70 years you owe me. Okay, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years. Well, think about it. If you use the 586 BC time frame, I'm really terrible at math, but when I subtract 586 from 70, I get to 516 BC. Is that right? Is that right? Sometimes I've messed up. I've been sure up here before, and I was dead wrong a couple times, so I have to always check. And the point being is, some of these people knew the prophecy, many people think, and they were just saying to themselves, well, why should we work? Nothing's going to come to fruition until the 70 years has happened. But what they failed to remember, I believe that in Daniel's prayer in Daniel's 9, he prayed that God would use the earlier time frame of 605 BC, which would then set it to be about 535 BC or something like that. Am I right? Man, that's, you don't understand what just happened right there. But anyway, <laughs> So in that case, then we're only about a year away. So you get what I'm saying. There was a prophecy that they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. And so some of them may have been saying, well, we don't really want to work. But the other thing that the Lord points out here definitively is that just like us, we do, they were procrastinating. Ah, we know the Lord told us to do it, but... Is it really time to do it? You know, the work was hard. If you go back to the book of Nehemiah, 
And Ezra, you see that when they first got there and they started to do their work and they're starting to have some success, there's both external opposition that comes against them. Remember, some people start saying, hey, king of uh, Persia, they're just doing, you know, they're not here for what they said they were here for. And, uh, you know, and they write letters to them and there is some icky, you know, awkward uh, uh, interactions between them and the king of Persia and the Jewish people. And also there was some internal strife, right? Uh, there is some external opposition. There was some internal opposition. You know, after a couple years, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't so lovely. They wanted to go and serve and build their own kingdom. And in fact, you see it right here. It says, uh, you know, the time, the, the, should the Lord's house really be built? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? Now you think, you see, the Lord's not against having a house or anything of that nature. But you see here that the priorities of the people of God, mark that down. The priorities of the people of God had gotten skewed. Who, who did it? Casting crowns? Yeah, they wrote a song called A Slow Fade. Remember that song? It was about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. Slow Fade, great song. But it is. Here is a slow fade. They start to out zealous for the things of the Lord, the thing that the Lord has asked them to do. They're doing it. They've been given uh, the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar stole, the the silver and the things to put in the the temple. And they're like, wow, we're going to reestablish this for God. And they get back and they start to do it and they start out. And it's hard. It's hard work. And, you know, you have this external uh, criticism coming to you, and then you have this internal uh, debate and criticism and opposition, and sort of, you know, you start to think to yourself, is this really worth it? Maybe I'll just go and just leave the family of God alone. Maybe I'll dip my toe in it a little bit, go over on Sundays or whatever uh, they do, uh, the times of worship, but really what I'm going to do is I'm going to step back and I'm just going to build my kingdom. And that's what was happening to the people of God. And do I even really have to unpack that for us? That's the comment of all comments for way America is. Remember this. What did uh, the Lord tell us in the New Testament as we apply it to ourselves? There's a lot of firsts in the Bible. And Jesus told us what to always keep first. Seek first... The kingdom of God, I think it's in Matthew 6, right around verse 33 or so. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You see, the problem with the people who were coming back from the exile is, is that they were doing this stuff in their own strength, And when they ran out of steam, when they ran into opposition, when they ran into criticism, when they ran into the hard times and the difficult times, as they are working in their own strength, watch this, they just sort of say, well, I'm going to take my eyes off the eternal perspective, and I'm going to make my priorities the things that I have at home. Now, the Lord tells us he wants us to deal with the things we have at home, the people and the place and all that sort of thing, but not at the exclusion of him. And what we do, we do a slow fade. Here's what happens. We start out and we get saved and we just, you know, 
<laughs> devour the Bible. And we're at the things and we're doing and we're serving and we're loving. And then, you know, what happens is, is, you know, you get married and then you have a child and you think your child's going to be the next, you know, Joe Montana or Tom Brady. And so you take him to every sporting event and you take her to every ballet event and you think she's going to be, you know, in the Russian ballet and she, no, but maybe she'll be the pageant queen. And well, we got to get her in these things. And before you know, your mind's about ready to fall off. Your head's about ready to explode. Because you've gotten yourself so far away from what it is your true moorings are in your family. The thing you started out with, you just, you and her maybe, and you just talked about it. And you said, we just want to raise a family for the Lord. We want to raise these kids up. We want to have them uh, and uh, for 18 years. And we want to make this a seminary for them. And then after 18 years, we just want to let them go and go, if the Lord tarries, and go and just affect the world for the kingdom of God. Just wherever the Lord calls them, just affect the Lord from the kingdom of God. But then we get involved and sixth grade comes and seventh grade comes and everybody's in this event and you can't stand to not have them in that event. And, they're, they're. and before you know it, you're so far off base. You look around and you say, what happened to the years? <laughs> we said we were going to raise them for 18 years in the Lord. We paid more attention to how popular they were or what sports they were in. Or what this and that. And nothing, none of those things are wrong. Tim Tebow did it and did it really successful. But many people can't handle it. And it's like these people. Our priorities are wrong. And I wonder if your priorities are wrong or my priorities are wrong. You know, five times you're going to come to it here in this book. The Lord tells us to consider our ways. And it's a really funny Hebrew phrase. It's saying your heart is out on the road. In other words, what's the direction of your life? The Lord is asking us in this book, as we all go back to school and we get done with vacation and we go back in for another year, the Lord is saying to us, I'm convinced. What's the direction of our lives? Is it going to be all the nonsense and the madness at the expense of the Lord, or will we be able to say when we come back here next August, we sought first the kingdom of God. And all those other things, those were added unto us. Well, their priorities are mixed up. They're building their houses, not God's. And it says, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, he says, consider your ways. Do you know this? In the communion chapter, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 11, the chapter about establishing the Lord's Supper, you know that Paul writes this, judge yourself lest you be judged. There's a great time, there are times in our Christian walk, isn't there, where I think the Lord calls us to just sort of step back and say, what's going on in my life? What is the direction of my life? I'm to consider my ways. And here he writes this, so fascinating. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. By the way, he's the bread of life. If you drink from the well that he provides, you'll never thirst again. We're clothed with Jesus and with the righteousness of God. 
And he who earns wages earns wages to, uh, to, uh, to put into a bag with holes. In other words, the Lord is telling us when we live a life of wrong priorities, listen, you're never, ever, ever going to be satisfied. And maybe things will work out, but maybe things won't work out. You'll work and you'll work and you'll work and you'll feel as if you've never had enough. The other thing it reminds me of is that, as Zechariah told us over in this fascinating chapter, chapter 4 in the book of Zechariah, he said this, Not by might nor by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When you're building anything, a house for the Lord, a family, you're building a fellowship. Maybe the Lord's called you to a ministry, a homeless ministry, or this ministry, or that ministry. If you work at it, and it's not from the Lord by a child of God, when a child of God sets out and it's in his own strength, they're in her own strength, and not by the Spirit of the Lord, but by their own might, eventually, you see, you're going to go turn around and go... I felt like I worked for all of this and it really is amounting to nothing. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And here you see it. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but are not filled. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. You earn wages, but there's holes. It's just falling through your bag. What, what a sad chapter. You, you look just like you would look, you know, as if you're following the Lord, you're doing some of the similar things, but you're doing it in your own strength, and none of it is eternal. It just falls away. Wow, who would want to do that? No, we don't want to do that. And so I think what the Lord is calling us to, look at this, is to examine our priorities here. Here's one great way, or some great ways you can examine your priorities. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So think about it. Let's just go to business first. Let's go to business first. Are you seeking God in your business or your commerce or your job or your, uh, uh, the things you do to volunteer, the work that you do? Are you seeking the Lord first? Or are you in it for yourself? And here's how you can sort of tell. And I've had it happen to me, so I'm not above any of this. Get... Um, passed over for a bonus, you're going to see who you're working for, the Lord or yourself. Get passed over for a bonus or have somebody else get a bonus that you didn't think deserved a bonus within your thing. Uh, how, how about this? Uh, do you have a bitter and um, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, you have a bitterness when you go to work. You're, you're bitter about what you do at work. Uh, are you understanding that what you do is unto the Lord and not for man, even though you work and want to do well for your boss? Are you seeking first the kingdom of God at work? And here's another thing within your finances that sort of tags along with that. Within your finances, here's one quick way you can figure out whether or not you are seeking first the kingdom of God or not. You want to know how? Just open up your checkbook and see what you spend your money on. Is it the things of the Lord? Are you tithing? Are you giving? And I'm 
you know, we don't talk a lot about tithing here, but there's firsts in the Bible. There's a lot of firsts. Don't you ever wonder why the Lord asks you to give out of your first fruits? He wants you to give the best and the first, so you're trusting him for the return. He wants to, you to worship on the first day of the week, or you do worship on the first day of the week. You don't have to worship on the first day of the week. You can worship every day of the week, and you should. But the early church met on the first day of the week, and it was the day that Jesus rose, yes. But it's also not the dregs of your life that you give to the Lord. It's the firsts of your life that you give unto the Lord in the first day of the week. Isn't that wonderful? And you're, what you're doing is when you give your firsts and your bests, I know that's not really a phrase, but I'm making it up in the sense that you do that. See, what you're doing is you're recognizing that it's not yours anyway. You're giving it back to the Lord first and you're trusting him because you know he's going to take care of you. You're seeking first the kingdom of God in your businesses and your commerce and your tithing and your offerings. It's beautiful. What about this? Consider your ways in your interpersonal relationships. How is that going? You know, one of the things that the Bible calls you to do, I'm convinced that the Bible calls us to be disciple makers. And I wonder if we, as a church, seriously take that into consideration and actually look for people to disciple. Oh, by the way, we should be getting discipled, <laughs> right? And so being disciple makers, so are we serious about the things of the Lord in our interpersonal relationships? Are we just, you know, yucking it up uh, in hobbies and uh, fun all the time and not thinking about what the Lord would have us do? And to be a disciple maker takes time and sacrifice. I wonder if there's somebody this year, this year, that we would, that the Lord would bring into our lives and that we could pour into their lives for a whole year. I'm considering our ways in that respect. Well, here's another thing. The Lord has given each of you something to serve, somewhere to serve. Man, is this a good chapter for serving, especially if you're the pastor. Not really, but you get what I'm saying, because a lot of people say, you know, I want to get plugged in. And then when you ask them, well, why don't you try this? Uh, there's always this reluctance. Well, you know, I have too much hockey this year, or I have this, or I have that. Well, I get that, but here's the pro point. Serving is what you've been called to, what I've been called to, to lay out my life for the people of God and for his good and his glory. And I could go on and on and on. We could go into almost every facet of our lives and ask, are we putting the Lord first? Are we putting the Lord first? Here, he says, consider your ways. If you're going to do it in your own strength, and if you're going to do it with wrong priorities, you're going to eat and not have enough. And the whole other bit that I read there. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. See, here's what God's called us to, and God's called us to work hard. There's nothing wrong with working hard and pouring out your heart and life for the Lord. And here he says, I've asked you to do, or I asked you folks to do one thing. And you now have gotten involved in many things. And what I'm calling you to do is I want you to go back and I want you to uh, uh, do the thing I've called you to. You, you see, they're feeling a little famished, not enough to eat. 
They felt like they had enough to eat, but they're not satisfied. And they're feeling a little thirsty or dry. They thought they had enough to drink, but nothing satisfied them. And here's what the Lord says. Isn't this interesting? He calls them back to the thing he asked them to do, the one thing, and said, if you want to feel full, do that. And the thing that he's called them to, look, it's hard work. He says, you're going to go have to go up in the mountains. If you're climbing up, it's altitude and up, and you're going to bring wood, and you're going to build temple. But look, you're, this is going to change your heart. Are you Watch this. This is going to change your heart, the Lord says, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. In other words, you're going to be involved in pleasing the Lord and not thinking about yourself so much. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that fascinating? So, he says, do that. So he's calling them to work. There's nothing hard or bad about work. The Bible says, you have been created to walk in good works, Ephesians 2, chapter, or verse 10. Well, here, he says, um, uh, uh, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house, Hmm, isn't that interesting? Each one of you have a house. My house isn't complete, the Lord says. By the way, well, anyway, where did, where did Jesus have to lay his head? Nowhere. But, but anyway, uh, uh, I blew it away because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and, and the mountains on the grain and the new wine and the oil on whatever the ground brings forth on men and on uh, all the labor of your hands. You know what? Just like in Jonah, do you remember Jonah? Jonah, the Lord loved Jonah enough to make him miserable in his running away. Are you getting that? He ran away and the Lord made him miserable in the best possible way to bring him back. Not in a punitive way, but a chastening because the Lord chastens his kids. Not in a punitive way, but in a chastening. And here, it's sort of the same thing. Through the old covenant and that sort of thing, the Lord said, uh, you know, if you don't do these things, there's going to be a, a land without fruit. If there was a national spiritual drought, there's going to be a national uh, agricultural drought, the Lord sort of had said. And what is he doing? He's asking you, he's asking them, he's asking the people, and then asking us, watch this, to abandon every one of their excuses and to reorder their priorities. Now, I want you to be honest with yourself. Are you a person that gives excuses all the time? of why you can do something or can't do something, God bless you. I'm one. See, when the Lord calls you to something, the Lord is asking you to follow through with it. Remember, we have been going through the book of John, and one of the main themes here as we move into the upper room discourse is that John ties. You know, it, it's a hard thing. I always used to think to myself, how in the world can somebody like me, what do I do to love the Lord? 
How can I show my love for the Lord? What, what is it I possibly could do? And John answers the question. He ties up trust, obedience with the way in which we love the Lord, you see, and the way in which he uh, 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 blesses us. And here it says that we are to abandon our excuses and reorder our priorities. Is there anything that you've done this year where you just know you've, you've just sort of had a slow fade in an area, in your discipling of somebody, in your meeting with the Lord in the mornings, in, in some other area, and the Lord you know, called you to something maybe last year or this year. Maybe the Lord called you to family devotions and you did it twice and your little kids were running around and you're like, Lord, I'm forgetting this. And now you feel dry and you need a drink, water, I mean, and, uh, uh, you know, you're just parched. The Lord says, get rid of those excuses, reorder your priorities, and watch this. Go back to that last thing that I called you to that you never followed through on. Man, that busts me. That busts me because I got a lot of ideas, you see, and some of them go by the wayside. Well, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealti, and however you say it, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, watch this, so beautiful, they obeyed. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it great when leaders, whatever, of a country, of an organization, whatever, when the leaders obey and the people obey and there's much fear in the, in the sense that there's respect and awe and fear the presence of the Lord. And recognize that God is a God that judges, who deals with us righteously and wow, what an awesome relationship to be in. All right, don't fade out. I can see a couple of you fading out there. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, verse 13, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, watch this, I am with you, says the Lord. Same thing is in John. If you go back to John 14, tell me the first verse of John 14. Somebody yell it out. Let not your heart be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. And he goes on and on and on. And he, what John there says is the pres, one of the prescriptions, part of the prescription, the main prescription for a troubled heart is the presence of the Lord and believing and trusting in him. And it's always that way. It's sort of the story of the Bible. He says, oh, wait a second. You're worried about getting it done on time. You're worried about having enough money. You're worried about your own house while you go and serve in my, on my house. You're worried about all that stuff. Well, listen, here's the antidote. You're like, oh, okay, what is it? I'm with you. Trust me, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Watch this. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius or Darius, it only took him 23 days to marshal the forces. When the Lord speaks and people obey, things happen for the Lord. It's just beautiful. And in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, here 
comes October. We were in September. Now we're in October, 520 B.C. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, you, we haven't tonight read Ezra, but in Ezra chapter 3, <laughs> in Ezra chapter 3, as they're starting to rebuild and do all those sorts of things, this is, this is funny to me. The young people jumped up and down. Yes, this looks amazing. And the old people, guess what they said? It doesn't look anything like Solomon's temple. <laughs> so funny. And here, uh, Haggai is referring to that, or yeah, yeah, referring to it. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the remnant of the people. Old people need to relax. What the young people are doing, it's, it's good. The Lord's doing something through them. Relax. It doesn't always have to be like 1960 or 1950 or 1940 or 1970 or 1990. No, it's different, but same. And the Lord's doing something, so don't be a curmudgeon. Forget what's behind. Move forward to the upward call of Jesus. Quit being a fuddy-duddy. Can I say that in church? Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? The old people were comparing, and it was always though so much better in our day. Instead of rooting for what God was doing now, instead of rooting how God had chosen to work with his people and build this temple... And then he says, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. How are you strong? You're looking for seven keys to being strong. You're looking for circumstances to change so you can be strong. And the Lord says, none of that. He's saying, I'm giving you my presence. I'm with you. You see, lots of times the getting our priorities out of whack or lack of trust is because we don't think his presence is enough. You, you think about that for a minute. Because when he's presence, we have all we'll ever need. All his generosity, all his giving, all his ability to look after a son or a daughter. He can do it better than we can. Trust me. Or trust the Lord. He, he, he knows what's good for you particularly and what's bad for you. He knows if you're tempted by this. He knows what your stronghold, or, you know, there can be a stronghold in your life. And he knows all these things. And he just says, listen, I want you to know when you need strength, vision, refreshment, revitalization, right priorities, if you'll just consider me, not all the benefits, the gifts, but just love me, the giver, and recognize I'm right there. Boom. See, it changes everything. And here he tells them, man, you're starting to go. You're starting to move back in. 
Peter's going to and start to build this thing, and there's going to be such opposition, and it's going to be so hard. If we're not careful, in two years, you're going to stop again. But if you recognize that I'm with you and will be with you, because watch what he says here in the sec- next verse. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Under the old covenant, the spirit was among the people, but under the new covenant, he's in God's people. So when you read this, you're like, whoa, shoot, the Lord came upon them and did some mighty work. But now, just as we spoke about in John 14, he said, you're going to do greater works. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was re- came out of the heavens, was sent to be the helper and the comforter to live in each person. So now when we're rowing and all in the same direction, the Lord can use us to impact a whole culture or a whole community for him. Well, the problem is we have lots of things that derail us. We get in fights. And so, you know, like ache and sin, what did the whole people of God have to do? They had to stop and they had to do this unbelievable adjudication process, which watch, it got them off mission. What was their mission? To go into the promised land and stand and live in the promises. But they had to stop because somebody chose to rebel. And when the rebellion happened, the whole camp stopped. And the Lord had to deal with the rebellion. And it was, wasn't a waste of time because the Lord was in it. But you get what I'm saying? It took them off mission. And here, what he's saying here is, wow, my spirit will come and it's going to help you. He's going to help you. Look in verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts once more, it's a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I'll shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now, this, what this means has been debated among theologians for a long time. One of the ways in which God was going to shake the heavens and the earth is, remember, there were the Babylonians. They've already been uh, defeated by the Persians. Well, they're going to get defeated by the Greeks. And oh, by the way, they're going to get defeated by the Romans. And so by the time you get to the time of Jesus, the Lord's really going to have shaken up the earth in the sense that there's different world domination. But in a larger sense, in a farther sense, this is quoted in Hebrews 12:26. Right here. This is quoted right here in Hebrews 12:26 talking about watch the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what's going to accompany the second coming. There's going to be some great and terrible uh, events in the heavens. And they shall come to the desire of all nations. This has been debated throughout the Uh, uh, (laughs) throughout time. What does this mean? It can mean a lot of things. What I think it means is that uh, this desire among the nations is that uh, the true desire of the nations is Jesus himself. And right now, not all the nations desire Jesus. But don't you see, or don't you uh, always, uh, when you read it, go, wait a minute, how can this be? Every knee, every tongue, Every tongue, every knee, everybody every, uh, is going to bow down and is going to call Jesus Lord. And you scratch your head and you go, well, when's that going to happen? Yeah, good point. I think so, soon, but when the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he'll fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what's interesting about this temple 
is this temple gets built, and then as it travel, as we travel in time towards Jesus, there's a guy that named Herod that comes on the scene. And Herod is a big builder. He's not a very tall guy. He's short in stature, but big builder. He loves to build. And what he does is he makes and renovates this temple. But is it because of the way in which the temple looks that the Lord filled the temple with glory? I don't think so. I think it's because Jesus taught in there and spoke in there and moved in there and appeared there. And oh, of course, a different temple in the millennial reign is going to be um, uh, beautiful and glorious itself. And then the Lord goes on and says something. Don't worry about silver. If I've called you to something, if listen, Look up here now. If the Lord has called you to something and you know he's called you to it, don't worry about the money. That's what he's saying right here. Don't make money the excuse for something that the Lord has called you to. He will provide where he guides. That's what he's saying. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord. And in this place... I will give peace. Yeah, the Prince of Peace, says the Lord of hosts. Well, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, or Darius, Timothy, there you go. Me and Timothy are on the same page. The word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? And the priests correctly answered, No, of course not, because holiness isn't communicable. I mean, it doesn't say that, but that's what they're saying. And Haggai said, Well, what about if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these? Will it become unclean? So the priest answered and said, yeah, it shall be unclean. Now think about it. Sin comes in by one man and then spread to us all, which means we all have a sin nature. So we're all contaminated when we have babies and have babies and have babies. There's a sin nature. We're not basically good. We're basically sinners, you see. And the way in which we become holy is not by, you know, getting near the holiest person in the church and sitting right there and rubbing elbows with them, being friends with them. That's not how. My grandma, she's such an amazing Christian. I'm just going to hang around her. doesn't work. In order to be holy, you need to have a sin nature replaced with God's nature, right? And his life. You live the crucified life, right? You see that? Well, why would he be asking this in verse 14, Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer here is unclean. These people have become unclean. And so no matter what they offer, a right sacrifice or a wrong sacrifice, it doesn't matter. They have become unclean. Even their good works were unclean because none of their works done without the problem rectified um, uh, is appropriate. Well, verse 15, and now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you didn't turn to me, says the Lord. Again, 
speaking of, you know, the old covenant and that, you know, they weren't walking in the ways of the Lord. And so national sin was causing national wreck of their agriculture and things of that nature. Well, consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. See, we should put this on our refrigerator. This verse Consider now from the 24th day that the foundation of the Lord, consider it. Is the city still in the barn? Is yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit? But from this day, I will bless you. From what day? Listen to this. Watch it. It's from the day they said, oh, shoosh. My priorities are completely messed up. Lord, I'm going to go back to the thing that you called me to do. And by your grace and with your help and by your spirit, I'm going to attempt to do that. And the Lord said, bingo, we're back on track. From that day, I will bless you. You no longer feel parched. You no longer feel hungry. The things that you do have eternal value now. And you're walking and you're moving and the Lord's multiplying and There's things, there's fruit that's coming from your life. Isn't that amazing? So here's the question. What's the last thing the Lord called you to do or me to do? And we sort of just weren't very faithful in it. See, I don't think the Lord's going like this, shaking his fist at you like, oh, I can't believe you didn't do that, Tim. What I think the Lord is saying is, trust me, go back to that thing that I've called you to and walk in that. Maybe I haven't called you to be the pastor or the person who sings up here and worships. Maybe I haven't called you to that. Don't worry. Don't compare. I've called you to something because I know this is the perfect place for you. So whatever that is, whatever it is, whatever the Lord's called you to, just walk in that. Boom. He says, okay, we're back on track. Isn't that great? So I'll bless you. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I'll overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, watch this. I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I'm going to make you like a signet ring. What was the signet ring? It was a token of royal authority. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. He stands behind all of his promises. What in the world is so special about Zerubbabel? Well, if you get this as a Berean, your heart's going to flood with praise, in my opinion. See, Zerubbabel was the last person in the Old Testament to be in both the line of Mary, Luke 3, 27, the royal line or the blood lineage line of Jesus, and he was the last one for Joseph, which is the legal line of Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. This is Zerubbabel. And God uses these two lines of ancestry for Jesus because, watch this, he placed a curse on this guy named King Jeconiah or Coniah or Jehoiachin, 
And that's in Jeremiah 22.30. So many people say, well, wait a minute. There's a curse on Jeconiah. Now you have a descendant of Jeconiah. His name's Zerubbabel. And we know that back in Samuel, if you'll just, I know it's a lot, but if you'll just get this, oh my. And I know back in Samuel that the Lord said that Somebody is going to sit on the throne of Israel forever from the line of David. But when you get to Jeconiah, there becomes a curse on him, his royal line, you see. So this question becomes, in biblical world, in theological world, how in the world, if there's a curse on the last known Davidic descendant, that Jesus can reign from David? I know it's a lot. Be a Berean. Berean. what happened was Jesus reversed the curse. And Jeconiah qualifies under the Davidic covenant via the legal line of Joseph. In other words, Zerubbabel as a descendant is the last legitimate king of Judah, and he could legitimately be recognized as the ruler, though not the king of the returning exiles. And this is like this. It's, it's like, I, I always say this, Catherine reminded me of it today. It's like, you know, when you're, uh, it's winter out here and you're, you have the blues and it's winter and there's no, nothing. And then, you know, around March or February, but, but you know, end of February, March, sort of the snow clears and the winds stop howling. And, and then all of a sudden, out in the, uh, the garden, you see that little bulb and it starts to go... And you see a little green thing come out and you go, yes, life. And your mood starts, to everything. This is what this is in the Bible. If you'll think this through, if you'll see this through, this is a really sort of complicated thing. But what I'm trying to tell you is Zerubbabel was chosen and the Lord absolutely positively stands behind his promises. And that's what the writer is trying to tell you here in the last two verses. And we sort of don't know who Zerubbabel is. But we need to know who Zerubbabel is. <laughs> All right, I've completely confused you. I understand. But if you think through it and you look it up and you start to recognize who Jeconiah was and who Zerubbabel is and the link to Jesus, watch, there's life and hope. And that's how we stop Haggai. <laughs> well, here's the deal. As we pray and walk out of here, what is the Lord calling us to do? Is there something in our past where we've not been very faithful? I don't think the Lord's up there just trying to bang you over the head with it, but what the Lord's saying is get back on that path. That's where I want you to walk. Walk there and we'll start again fresh and new with mercy and grace and my power. And let's do this. And then the Lord, I think, is saying, when you think there's no way and there's no hope in a marriage, in a friendship, in a career, in a ministry, in whatever, when you look at Jesus, there's life. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. 
uh, for this amazing word, Haggai. <laughs> and Lord, I just pray that as we move forward and out of here, you'd help us to reprioritize our life, examine our life in the good way, in a healthy way. Lord, if we've gotten off track, if we've stopped meeting with you, if we're not deriving our resource and strength from you, Lord, may we run back to you, our Father, and receive from you so that we can go out and glorify you and bear fruit that would glorify you. Others could come and taste of our lives and be refreshed. But mostly, as we point people to you, many would come into a relationship with you, Lord. I pray for each one of these people, they'd have a gospel-appointed meeting this week, that they'd be able to share the love and light of your son, Jesus. Help us in this regard, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.